0: Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. Today's uh, guest is Josh Linkner, who wrote the book, The Big Little Breakthroughs. And I have to tell you, I love this book, and I hope this is taken as a compliment, Josh, but it has the substance and fun of a Malcolm Gladwell book. And one of my favorite shows whose character is mentioned, MacGyver, is mentioned, and this book covers everything you need to know about being creative and innovative. So let's welcome our guest, Josh Linkner. Josh, uh, great to have you from Naples, Florida. Mark, thank you so much. What a privilege to be with everybody today. Excited
1: for a lively conversation. And uh, there is no greater compliment one can pay to a writer than aligning with Malcolm Gladwell. I seriously would be happy to carry Malcolm Gladwell's luggage around behind him. So that's
0: I'm, I'm deeply honored. Thank you. <laughs> you and I both. So Josh, before we talk about the book, just give a little bit of background about yourself and how you arrived here. Sure. So um,
1: like you, I've had the entrepreneurial bug for many years. Over the last 30 years, I started, built, and sold five technology companies, and the process created about 10,000 jobs, and we exited collectively for over $200 million. Um, I then really was very passionate and remained passionate about my hometown of Detroit, Michigan, not Naples, where I am today, but I'm a hardcore Detroiter. And uh, so we, we started a venture capital fund, and I invested and in, helped get about 100 startups off the ground. Some succeeded wildly, some failed miserably, but you know tried, tried to contribute to our, our economy. But, but really, for, for me, I started my career as a jazz guitarist. I still play regularly. I've been playing for 40 years. And, and the through line for me has always been creativity and inventive thinking and creative problem solving. So the book that you mentioned that is gracious of you to say, Big Little Breakthroughs, How Small Everyday Innovations Drive Oversized Results, launched last week. It's my fourth book. And uh, I just I, was, I'm, I remain so passionate about helping people unlock their creative abilities. And, and the whole
0: premise is to help everyday people become everyday innovators. Well, that book more than accomplishes that. In fact, it's a fun book. It's kind of a book that you really can't put down. And I think that's what people are really going to enjoy about this book. So let's get started. So why did you write this book and why this particular title? Well, I feel like most innovation books
1: are about these moonshots. And most most innovation thinking is around how do you invent a billion-dollar idea or how do you transform a whole industry? And the problem is, for most of us, that is inaccessible. Unless we're a billionaire hoodie wearing, you know, tech nerd, like that doesn't apply to most of us. And I wanted to make the opposite kind of book, a book that was accessible to all, that didn't create, that didn't characterize innovation as some exclusive members-only club to which they're no, no longer accepting applicants. And so this is a, a sort of a grassroots book. It's very pragmatic. So it's not just like, hey, how can you be inspired? But like, how can you actually cultivate these skills? What what habits can you deploy? What what tactics and techniques can you use? What mindset, sh- mind, mindset shifts are necessary so that we can all bring creativity to the surface? And Mark, I know this sounds like kind of cheesy, but, but I believe it from my soul that I believe that there are 7 billion people on this planet walking around with dormant creative capacity me included. And, and the notion is, if we can unlock even a little bit of it, the world is just a better place. I think often my hometown of Detroit, what if, what if Detroit was 5% more creative? Like, think what that would mean to, to educational outcomes and healthcare outcomes and public safety and racial justice and all the things we care about. So it is mostly a business book, but but it also even transcends that. It's really about how each of us can bring creativity to the surface in small, everyday ways in order to drive meaningful outcomes. And just real quickly, the the book title, Big Little Breakthroughs, the whole concept is instead of most people think, again, we have to swing for the fences, we have to come up with some gigantic idea. And and when we weigh the scales of, of risk versus reward, we just gravitate to doing nothing. And so this is the principle of taking small ideas pursuing high velocity, high volume of daily creative acts. And those little ideas are way less risky, way more accessible to us all. They develop critical skills and they add up to big stuff. So it's the upside down version, upside down view of innovation as we know it.
0: Well, that, and I think that's what people are going to love about this book. What's the difference between being imaginative and creative and how do you define them? Well, these are words that we often use interchangeably. And, and for me, I,
1: I think about it like this. Imagination is just the 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 human act of of, again imagining, envisioning something that doesn't currently exist. So if I went out and painted my car purple, that would be imaginative because my car is currently not purple. However, there's no real value in doing so. Like I'd get yelled at by my wife for sure. I'd I'd be sleeping on the couch for six months. So imagination just again simply means that you you can envision something that doesn't exist. If you go to the next level, I would define creativity as an imaginative act that you've actually not just thought of, but actually did something and that there's some intrinsic value Now we can debate. What is intrinsic value in art? For example, some people think something is good and it's not, but, but, you know, there's a painting behind me by a a very famous artist and, and we'd probably look at that and agree. Yeah, that, that was creative because there's some intrinsic underlying value. If I were to double click one more, so back to my painting, like if I went out and finally painted pinstripes on my car, might not appeal to everybody, but at least someone might say there's some artistic value there. One more double-click, though, is innovation. And innovation, to me, is creativity applied for something useful. So, in other words, innovation has the characteristic of utility, utility value. So, back to my silly paint example, if I could invent a technology where a driver could get into their car every morning, push a button, and choose whatever color they wanted their car to be that day, that would probably be innovative. So it's 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 I imagine something. It, it has artistic value, intrinsic value, and there's utility value because I could probably sell that to the auto industry. So anyway, that's the way I define creativity, innovation, and imagination.
0: Well, I can see that by the artwork that you like uh, behind you, for sure. And that you like things that are absolutely thinking out of the box, uh, and you even mentioned about where that concept came from. Can you share uh, Lin-Manuel, creator of Hamilton's story and what you can learn from it? Yeah, so you know, a core theme from, of the book is that,
1: and I've been studying human creativity now for a couple of decades. The research is crystal clear that all human beings are creative. It's very unfortunate that many of us grew up in an environment where our third grade teacher told us we weren't very creative and, and that can stick with you for, for years or decades. And by the way, we can all be creative in our own ways. Like I play jazz guitar pretty well. I can't draw a stick figure if I tried. But the point I'm making is that all of us truly are, are hardwired to be creative. That's our natural state. But at the same time, when we look at, at people who are, and I think Lin-Manuel Miranda, for those that don't know him, he wrote Hamilton. He wrote the music for Moana. He's he's the best thing that we have. He's like the modern day Sondheim or Mozart or something. He's an absolute genius by all measures. But you know, when, when I study Lin-Manuel Miranda, the, we, we, we have a misconception. The misconception is that it's easy, that he just was was born this way, that, that he had a certain lightning bolt of inspiration from the heavens, and it just flows out of him every moment, and, and it's just natural, and, and we could never be like Lin- 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 Lin-Manuel Miranda. But when you study him, the truth is it's not like that at all. He has just as many insecurities as you and I do. There's days he writes stuff and he thinks it's terrible. There are days that he has doubt and, and concern. And furthermore, he developed and cultivated his skills over time. In other words, he grew into his creativity. He wasn't just magically anointed with it. And to me, it's really encouraging when you look at someone like that, who we just think, he's super creative. I could never do that. To say, he's just like all of us. And we all actually could do something pretty cool. I always like to say, Mark, that creativity is very much like your weight and not like your height. So for me, I'm 5'5 on a good day. And and try as I may, I'm (laughs) probably not going to grow another foot by next month. But my weight, I can control based on my behaviors. And your creativity is exactly the same way. It's not, it's not fixed. In, in other words, it's expansive based on how much
0: time and effort we put into developing those skills. And I think you're right about that. I think people automatically assume that they aren't or somebody has actually told them that they're not. And, and of course, that they are. You wrote a lot about a process for how people arrived at their ideas, and what process do you recommend, especially for people who don't think of themselves as creative? You're asking how to generate ideas. Yeah, you know, people who don't think themselves as being creative, and you say, look, there is no such thing as a creative gene. You can do it. You're, you can do it. So, what's a process that you suggest that they go through to unlock that creativity? Well, I'll share a few thoughts. First of all, I just say this,
1: if you were gonna go learn something completely new, like learn Bulgarian, you're starting from scratch and that's a pretty steep hill to climb. But the good news about creativity, even if you haven't practiced it regularly for decades, because it's part of who we are, it's more like reconnecting with something than it is learning something from scratch. So I'll share the, the answer to your question, but just everybody should know that it's not a mountain that's difficult to climb. And I write in the book, even just a 20 hours of practice or thinking about this over you know over a year is still going to create massive boosts in your creative output for all of us. So it's, it doesn't require millions of dollars or years of study. But really what we need to do when you and I tried to take a scientific view to human creativity. we need to shift mindsets, we need to shift habits and we need to shift techniques or skill sets and i cover them each extensively in the book but but all three of those again that sounds like gee that's so macro how am i going to do that but it's not as hard as you think and so in the book i cover the eight core obsessions or core mindsets of everyday innovators which are pretty simple principles that each of us can understand and deploy i talk about habits a lot which is you know what can you do on a daily basis and i'm happy to share my I do a five-minute-a-day creativity ritual every morning that just completely sets me up for a great day. And also happy to talk about, Mark, at your, your direction, um, techniques. Most of us use a technique that's very out of date. It was invented in 1958 called brainstorming. And brainstorming needs an upgrade. It is, it is, it's perfectly designed to yield mediocre ideas. So I share much more fun and much more practical tools, techniques that we can do when we're, 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 we have to generate ideas, better
0: ways to do so. And we're going to touch on those eight things as well. Are there foods that dampen creativity and others that increase creativity? I mean, there's always all kinds of stories in the media about that. But what's your opinion about that? You know, my opinion is that, um, you
1: know, your your mind obviously is is in your body is part of the creative process. And, and I don't you know, prescribe like go go eat Brussels sprouts or something, but um, I do find that when I'm trying to be creative, if I feel really heavy and weighed down, if I haven't had a lot of sleep, if I drank a little too much last night, uh, it definitely affects my creative output. And so just like, you know, think about this, if you were an athlete and you had a big um, event coming up, you know, you'd probably leading up to that event, be really thoughtful about what you consumed. And the same is true with creativity. And you know, if you're like, okay, Tuesday, I'm going to really get into it. I'm going to go do deep creative work. It may not be the best day to eat like a big steak and a huge plate of fries and a milkshake. Like you might want to, you know, just, just, just err on the healthy side to keep your energy up and, you know, hydrated and stuff. It's nothing you probably don't already know, but I do find personally that when I, when I indulge
0: a little too much, my creativity suffers. I eat a lot of dark chocolate nonpareils. That's what Creates my creativity. I love dark chocolate, not parals. Please talk about the experiment of experiencing awe or dullness. I thought this was interesting, the Torrance test and what you learned. Yeah, this
1: is so cool, man. I like I I went to this act of discovery doing this book. I, I spent over a thousand hours in research and interviews. So I did all kinds of academic research and neuroscience research and business research, but I also interviewed CEOs, billionaires, nonprofit leaders, Grammy Award-winning musicians, and really amazing everyday people doing cool stuff but on the research front you're you're referencing a a study that i covered in the book which i just thought was the coolest thing ever and and it's a study out of a university in italy they wanted to measure how how malleable is are people's creative abilities and and could you just jigger a couple things and and, and expand people's creativity so they took a, a group of people that were basically identically situated you know same age groups and you know demographics etc divided them in half as all experiments sent, tend to do and and they basically then showed each group two groups a video and then asked them to perform a standard creativity test called the Torrance test, which is sort of a standard measure of creative output anyway one group, and both groups were shown a video. Group one was shown a really boring video, like sheeps grazing in a meadow. The next group, though, was shown a video that was awe-inspiring, majestic cliffs and eagles soaring and like just really cool nature stuff. So identical groups shown different videos asked to perform a creativity test. And the results of just that simple adjustment were jaw-dropping. The, uh, the, the awe-inspired group outperformed their counterparts by like 84%. And so to me, it was such an interesting thing because it wasn't that we trained those people. It wasn't that those people were just God-given 84% more creative, but but the simplest adjustment in conditions had a meaningful difference in their creative output. And the thing I love about that, not just so much about being awe-inspired, but more like if we can just change things a little bit, we can see a disproportionately
0: large set of outcomes related to creativity. Well, I think uh, the next question is what bothers me most is that creativity gets sucked out of people. Why do people grow out of creativity? It really does. And this is heartbreaking to
1: me. I I see this all the time. You know, I see people, oh, I'm just not that creative. I just, I just am so sad when I hear that because truthfully, we're all creative. Uh, Researchers did this uh, famous test and and they asked kids who were in kindergarten a simple question, are you creative? 98% of kids said, yeah, of course I'm creative. I mean, you've never met a non-creative kindergartner but they asked the same question to high school graduating seniors. And the numbers dropped to 2%, 2%. And so what's wow. happening, and, and, and basically it's, it's, it's been said that you, you enter kindergarten with a full set of colorful crayons and then you graduate high school with a single blue ballpoint pen. And, and it, it, it's <laughs> sad to me because what's happening, instead of growing into our creativity, as we must, as we can, we, we tend to grow out of it. The reason behind it is largely due to well-intentioned parents and teachers and bosses and such who are trying to protect us. Again, they're well-intentioned, but, but we, what do we learn in school? Don't make any mistakes. Whatever you do, don't make mistakes. And, and there's only one right answer. And do what the teacher says and keep your head down and do what you're told. And all these things that maybe were appropriate 50 years ago, but are totally out of date today. Today, more than ever, it's mission critical for us to develop our kids so that they're creative problem solvers and inventive thinkers in order to be successful adults. So I'm, I'm, I'm really passionate about educational outcomes, but I think that the notion is... So that's the bad news. That's the bad news. The good news, though, is I've worked with people who are self-proclaimed, don't have a creative bone in their body. And we give them a new technique or a new approach or a new mindset. And within minutes, they're able to let their creativity shine. So truthfully... Everyone is creative. And I know it sounds weird because maybe it doesn't, most adults don't feel that way, but we all have the capacity to be. Well,
0: you even had in in the book about people who've had brain accidents and all of a sudden that unlocks uh, amazing, uh, incredible skills that they never even knew they had. I mean, I like that one story about the guy who could start playing the piano like he was uh, Mozart or Rachmaninoff uh, from a a brain injury. It it was incredible. We have a, a a question from one of our listeners. Does the author think that the environment that we're working in makes us more or less creative uh, working on on the beach compared to a boring boring office? Yeah, thank you so much for that question. Um, The answer is 100%
1: yes, environment matters. You'll think about this. For centuries, artists, playwrights, musicians went to inspiring places to do inspiring work. And then contrast that to modern American office life, which is like a sensory deprivation chamber. You know, you're sitting in this windowless room of fluorescent lighting and uncomfortable chairs, and you're on a five-minute deadline. It's like, all right, go, go be creative. Of course, we're going to generate mediocre ideas. So I'm not saying that you need to have a foosball table or have to invest a bunch of money, but the, the simplest twists, the little tweaks in environment can absolutely make a big difference. It's funny. Like, you always hear people, oh, I was on vacation, and I came up with a great idea. I was walking in the woods. I was in the shower. When was the last time you heard someone say, okay, I'm sitting at my desk. And and I'm responding to email and the phone's ringing and my boss is yelling in my ear and I I got a project that's on a deadline and bam, I'm hit with a lightning bolt of inspiration. I think that's happened in the grand total of all humanity, like never. So kidding aside, (laughs) there are times when we need to be heads down and there are times when being in a heads down environment is great. When we're doing transactional work, when we got to crank out a deadline, awesome. But then separately, there are times when we should be heads up. And heads up is that creative work. And, and, and the, the, the physical environment should be different, ideally. Go for a walk. Well, I take my team on a field trip all the time. Hey, let's
0: go on a field trip somewhere. And like, you just start to see ideas flourish. I'm, I'm with you. I tell people all the time, just keep walking. Just walk down the street. and Ideas will stop popping like popcorn. I used to have a, a boss that um, he built a company called Senecor. And he had me one day a week, not come into the office. He said, I want you to go in New York, typer or nothing. I just want you to think. That's all I want you to do for that day. And it was a smart idea. One another guest asked, do you think there's a direct correlation between creativity and problem solving? I do, just just real touch quickly and I'll answer that. But Mark,
1: you sparked something in my mind. Um, You know, your boss who told you to go think for a day. Um, I've actually issued a a thought experiment, which I'm happy to share with you today, to thousands of people around the world. So I've issued people a 5% creativity challenge. In other words, if you look at a 40-hour work week, 5% of that is two hours. And I suggest try it for 30 days, fixed time length. And and basically, you you say, instead of doing heads-down work for 40 hours – say, could I do two hours a week of heads-up time? Or you schedule it like an important meeting. And as you said, you think, you brainstorm, you go for a walk, you, 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 you noodle, you explore, you really let your creativity shine. Anyway, I've, I've issued this challenge to thousands of people around the world. I just report back, here's what I hear. First thing I hear is a 0% drop in productivity. Zero. Magically, 40 hours get smushed into 38 hours and no one misses a beat. Next thing I hear, I hear Boy, the first week it felt so frivolous. I felt like I was cheating on my spouse. I didn't want anyone to see. Like, like, why was I not producing? You know, but 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 by the by the end of that thirty days, the common thing that I hear is people say that has become the most productive time I spent. That I've had more productivity as a result of that than I've had in the last decade. So, however you structure it, you know, but but maybe give yourself a little experiment. Say, okay, what if I did carve out a little bit of time, like it's an important meeting, and do some heads up work and and give it a try.
0: I, I myself like to experience different things, but I'm an enormous reader. That's hence why I started this podcast last March. And I find from reading, ideas just keep flowing into my head, just hearing what other people are doing. It sparks the creativity gene, at least in me. Um, how do you define innovation? And you write about three flavors. What yeah, and they?
1: I just, and now I'm bouncing, on, I'm sorry, but I do want to get back to the question that you asked because I didn't want to you know, ignore that person's question. Now, the question was, was um, is oh, there yes, a correlation yes, between creativity and problem solving? And the answer is 100% yes. yes. So I kind of think about about if you, on a football team, there's the offense and the defense. So we often think about creativity and innovation and such as offense, which is inventing a new product or designing a new marketing campaign or something, something that's going to grow a business or or drive revenue. But if you draw a line the same way there's the defense on, on, on a football team, defensive focused creativity is sort of like creative problem solving. And so now maybe you're trying to overcome a challenge or you're trying to drive efficiency or reduce um, safety incidents in a factory or something. And so the point is that if we develop these skills, think about like a ray gun. You can point that ray gun at driving growth. You can point that ray gun at closing sales, or you can point that ray gun at solving a problem. And so I think there really is a correlation, and I find that that the most creative people uh, which all of us can be, certainly, those that have developed skills, become great problem solvers because often the the answer to the problem that you're facing isn't as obvious as you might think. You know, the first obvious answers aren't always the best answers. And it's those that, that apply these skills to problem solving end
0: up yielding uh, better outcomes. Uh, so, um, and I'm glad you were able to answer his questions. We were skipping over it. Um, How do you define innovation? And and you're right about the three flavors. What are they? Yeah, okay, cool. I'm so glad you asked that. So here's most of us think of innovation.
1: And what I define as all caps innovation, which is the word innovation spelled in all capital letters. And that's like the internet invention, uh, moving type penicillin. And these are these like game changing, history making innovations that change the universe. The first modern flight, you know, inventing the assembly line. For sure. Those are innovative. No question about it. But there's no minimum threshold for something to be innovative. In other words, it's not like if it's under a billion-dollar idea, it doesn't count. So that is a type of innovation, but there are other types of innovation. The second one I define is capital I and the rest of the word in lowercase. Innovation, still the same word, but capital I, the rest of the letters, lowercase. And these are the innovations that are more common. Instead of it being a a once-a-generation thing, it's more like maybe each of us could do two or three of those a year. And those are pretty meaty. Like that might significantly drive sales or you might boost your income or you may, you know, invent a new concept or something. And again, these don't make the cover of a magazine necessarily. You know, people aren't making documentaries about them, but they're still really meaningful and they drive outcomes. But one more double-click on that word, and now we look at all lowercase innovation, which I also call big little breakthroughs. And these, to me, are micro-innovations. And and these are the the often overlooked and, and, and not enough celebrated ideas that I just love. Because big little breakthroughs are all around us. We can discover five of them a day. We can make them part of our daily routine. And, and, and these are, are, again, they're way less risky. They're way more accessible. The more we build skill with them, the more likely we'll actually be to have a bigger breakthrough. And, and they add up to great stuff. In the book, I actually covered a study from Harvard that said that 77% of the U.S. gross domestic product comes from small ideas from big little breakthroughs, not from SpaceX, you know, which is attention grabbing certainly, but, but it's those like everyday innovations that really fuel our economy and drive success for us all. That's what the book is about, is cultivating these smaller ideas. P.S. All three of those are all innovation. It's not like one is they're they're just different magnitudes. And so let's give ourselves permission to go after the small ideas. You know, it's funny, Mark, like, let's just say we were all in this call together and said, okay, look, we got a big problem in our country with, um, I'll just pick one of the many big problems. How about, um, you know, uh, systemic racism? Yes. So if we said, all right, we have to right now solve the entire issue of systemic racism with one idea and we better get it right. Go. We're all going to phrase up, me included. Like, how are you? That's so big. Like, how do you possibly get your arms around that? But if instead I said, hey, listen, systemic racism, we could argue, is it a problem or not? But assuming we think it's a problem, we could say, hey, I'd like everybody to just come up with five teeny, tiny, mini, mini, mini ideas that might help the problem. My guess is that every one of us on this call would come up with five ideas without blinking. And so the point is that these little innovations are so much more within the grasp of us. And when we cultivate them, it just leads
0: to great outcomes. We have another question from a listener. And by the way, uh, we have listeners from Turkey today, Ireland, Australia, Sweden, from all over the world. So obviously, they're super excited to hear about your book. Many educational institutions from elementary school through college don't teach problem solving well. Does the author have ideas on how to do that at all levels? I think they suck the life out of you, most of these institutions. You know, I'm so busy giving you quizzes and tests that they don't really work on Creativity and problem solving. So, what's your thoughts on that? I couldn't agree more.
1: That's such a wonderful observation. And um, you know, it's by the way, it's not teachers' faults. Teachers are heroes. They're wonderful people that should be celebrated. There's there's no more noble profession than being a teacher. So it's not the teacher's fault. It's that we have a, a system that is in desperate need of reform and is wildly out of date. It was designed for a different era when the goal of producing an effective adult was someone who could follow the rules and keep their head down and follow the operating manual and retire 30 years later with a gold watch. That world doesn't exist. So we are educating people for a world that no longer exists instead of teaching them the skills they desperately need. Um, in fact, one of the things they covered in the book, the world economic forum did this massive study about the future of work and they interviewed CEOs and leaders all around the world, different industries and such. And, and they said, what are the most needed skills in the workforce in 2025? And it turned out that four of the top five most needed skills were tied to creativity, like creative problem solving, inventiveness, et cetera. And and so what we've learned is that the things that we thought were hard skills, quote, unquote, in the past have largely become commoditized or outsourced or automated. Whereas the quote, unquote, soft skills are the absolutely most important things that we can cultivate in our kids so they become successful adults. And you're exactly right. This teach to the test stuff, like how productive is this? Go memorize a bunch of useless facts, get them so you can drill them deliver the test, and two days later, you forget them. What did you learn with that? Absolutely nothing, as opposed to the ability to like wrestle a problem to the ground. I personally think that we need massive educational reform. Here's a funny example. I was thinking about this the other day. So most of us probably learned long division by hand when we were in middle school. I did. Meanwhile, and I don't say this to be boastful, but, but I, I've, I've created 10,000 jobs. I've bought and sold companies. I've raised hundreds of millions of dollars of capital. I've never used long division once. Zero times. Meanwhile, how about, I believe there should be a mandatory course in all middle schools called making mistakes. Help those kids understand what's a good mistake. What's a bad mistake. When should you take a responsible risk? What can you learn from it? Like, like we need totally different set of skills to help our kids be successful. And so obviously the burden now falls on us as parents, but I, I, I mean, maybe Mark, we should team up on our next book together and Talk about educational form, but it's desperately No,
0: I taught 17 years at university, and I would get dinged on the fact that I didn't give enough tests. And they said, then you need to be more uh, rigorous. I said, what's your definition of rigorous? And it was more test. And I said, so I talked to them. They tell me what I just told them. But no, i rather them go solve problems. So I'd have them write chapters of business plans and have to think about how they arrived at those answers. You know, take out, the get them to be more creative. Be more thoughtful because that's the reality uh, of what you're going to be facing. And for this country, our only competitive differentiator is our entrepreneurial spirit. And if we don't keep cultivating that at all levels, and if we see people, especially in Philadelphia, where we have such a high illiteracy rate in urban areas here, we don't get them to be literate, we're missing phenomenal opportunity from these people. So that's why we've got to got to jump on that. I have so. two older kids and just, they, they had these totally contrasting
1: experiences. I'll just share real quickly. So my older, uh, my yeah. younger daughter at that time, uh, Chloe, she's now 21. Um, she's in art class and she's like nine years old. And the, the art assignment is go draw a picture of a bear. So she goes and draws this bear and it's like purple and funky shape. And she goes to show it to the teacher and she's all waiting for praise and admiration. And the teacher says, Chloe, that's not what bears look like. Go back and redo it. And again, I'm, I'm sure she was a well-intentioned person, but like, what did that do to my daughter's creative spirit at that time? Meanwhile, in contrast, my son, Noah, funny story, he was, he's older, uh, but at the time he was probably about the same age. And, and there was a squirrel that died like out on the school playground. So normally what they do is call the custodian and clean it up and go on with class. But there was, there's this really creative teacher and she's like, class, we got to go outside right now. And they all gather around the squirrel and say, okay, this is very sad and all that. But they said, let's look at it from different lenses. And they said to one kid, how would a scientist look at this? They said to another kid, "How would an artist look at the situation?" They said to another kid, "How would a time traveler look at the situation?" And they took this everyday event and 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 studied it and and thought about it from different lenses. And I just think, what sharp contrast! And so, in, in we're lucky that there are wonderful teachers that do stuff like that, but I do believe we need to make that more systemic.
0: Uh, no question about it. Uh, I, I I like uh, of course that you mentioned all these musicians and authors and so forth. Uh, that you know what they went through to be creative, and I think. We learn uh, a lot from them. I went to a um, a suspense mystery book novel conference, and I ended up writing a column for uh, the uh, business journals about what we can learn um, uh, from these novelists about how to launch a startup business. Because every novel, every book, like when you wrote this, is a new startup venture, and it requires all the different skills to go and manage that. So uh, I applaud you for that, and I think that's. One of the great things that I learned from this book, there's a significant mention of Jimi Hendrix in your book. Why did you mention him and what can we learn from Jimi Hendrix?
1: Well, a couple of things. First of all, I'm, I'm a guitarist. I, I play mostly jazz, but uh, I'm a fan of Jimi Hendrix and I'm a fan of artists of any type, business artists, legal artists, musicians, whatever, that that do something new, that push the boundaries, that break the rules, you know? And so Jimi Hendrix did that. And he had this famous performance at Woodstock where he wailed on the national anthem. And to me, it was cool because he was a wonderful technician, but he also played with so much soul. And I was fascinated by his ability to be both technical and soulful. And as I got into studying him a little bit, because I'm a music nerd, it turns out that he was was mixed handedness, an ambidextrous type person. He wasn't left or right. He was both. And, and what really is cool about that, and I went on to explore in the book, is that you know the previous thinking around creativity is that we have a split brain. The right brain is the creative party brain, and the left brain is the boring suit and tie brain. And that's not true at all. Actually, creativity is this intricate, interconnected uh, parts of the brain doing things on a much more holistic manner. And it turns out that mixed handed people like Jimi Hendrix and like Bob Dylan um, actually tend to bring more creativity to the surface. By the way, you don't have to be born that way. We can develop those skills. But I thought it was cool. I wanted to dispel that myth about, uh, but, oh, I'm left-handed, so therefore I'm creative, or I'm right-handed, right. therefore I'm not.
0: Um, there's a question here from the audience. Have you met Magic Johnson? And if so, uh, please tell us something you personally found interesting about him. Have you ever met Magic?
1: I have. I, I, I know him well. Irvin uh, is a wonderful person. I, he invested in our venture capital fund. We started a fund in downtown Detroit. Uh, trying to help our community. We said, you know, maybe we'll make some money, but more importantly, maybe we can make a difference. So he was a partner in our fund. And um, I'll tell you a quick story. First of all, he's dynamic and amazing all that, obviously, smiles big as that, you know, his kool-aid smile. But um, I was in a business meeting with him, and we were talking about serious matters, and we're you know discussing big numbers and all this stuff. and then and then someone from our office kind of walked in with their son holding his hand and and they sort of sheepishly walked in and didn't want to interrupt. And, and, and all of a sudden, everything stopped and, and magic just tuned us out and looked at that kid in the eye as if that kid was the only human being on the planet and said, so son, tell me you play ball. And they had this beautiful moment and it was like this deep human connection. And here's this guy who's worth hundreds of millions of dollars and he signed all the autographs he never needs to in his day and he could have just blown it off, but he connected at such a deep human level. And to me, that was far more impressive than his all the amazing accomplishments that we already know
0: and celebrate. It's just his ability to be a wonderful, deep, kind human being. Well, you made our, our listeners day by telling him that story and all of us as well. Another question from the audience is, how much of corporate America engages employees to offer creative solutions? I'm specifically thinking of GM or Ford encouraging workers to improve the assembly line. Yeah, yeah I think we've got a lot of mixed messages in, in, in many companies.
1: Um, there are, are car companies like that, that that practice something called Kaizen, which is essentially this notion of continuous improvement, and they're trying to have people spotting for new ways to do stuff. That is awesome, and we for sure 100% should be doing that. But in some of those same companies, by the way, they, 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 they encourage little creativity in one area and discourage it in another. I'm not picking on anybody, but I think that, to me, job number one of leadership is to create a the conditions that support the creative process. Whether you have one employee or 100,000 employees, the notion which should be, how do we make all of those people everyday innovators? Now, when I say that, people cringe. They're like, oh, but I don't want my people running down the halls and drawing on the wall with purple crayons. Me neither. Of course not. People can be creative in appropriate ways, but if instead of... of the company being creative and the rest just doing what they're told. That's not a recipe for sustainable success in such a competitive economic landscape. So I think it's a really important job of leaders to create optimal conditions and rituals and rewards that support the creative process because those are the organizations that will truly thrive. You know, one just quick example from the book, I spent a lot of time studying rituals and rewards of leaders. So one of my favorite people that I interviewed in the book was a guy named Trewin Resterick from the UK. And uh, he he runs a 50 or so person nonprofit organization. And I was asking him like, how do you keep your people really engaged and taking responsible risks and and recognizing that creativity is a part of their role? He does a ritual. It's really funny. Every Friday, they do something called F Up Fridays. Mm -hmm. They say the whole word. I'll just be PG here today, F Up Fridays. But F Up Fridays, he brings the whole team together for a brown bag lunch. And they go around the table, one person after another. They have to stand up and share. What did they F up that week? And what do they learn from it? And then when they get to someone that didn't F something up, they're like, well, why not? What are you going to try next week? And so just think about the message that that simple ritual drives deep into the DNA of that team, that responsible risk taking is part of the gig. And we're going to have to screw some stuff up to get to the good stuff. And, And part of your core job responsibility is to be a creator. And so when I look at organizations embracing rituals like that company-wide, to me, I'm like, yeah, that's a company that happens
0: in our entrepreneurial environments. And that's why entrepreneurs like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos end up uh, surpassing established companies in relatively short periods of time, 10, 20 years uh, time is not much. Here's a question from the audience. Know the rules first before you can break them. Thoughts? So one one of the eight core mindsets that I cover in the book, I call it break it to fix
1: it. And the notion here is is we've all been told if it ain't broke don't fix it. That is terrible advice. Like who came up with that slogan? I mean, why would you wait till a system or a process has failed before you get after repairing it? Like what would you do that on a jet airplane? Of course not. Like that's crazy. So I think it's our responsibility in fact to carefully examine our systems, processes, products, people, methods and 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 on a regular basis dissect them explore them, examine them, and rebuild them with the notion, with the, with the goal of upgrading them. That's what leadership is all about, not clinging to what worked in the past, but rather to be in a constant state of reinvention. So with that as the backdrop, the question was, Should you, do you need to know the rules before you can break them? Um, it, it's a really d- difficult question. It sounds kind of obvious, but it's more like one of those like Zen co hard to answer. And the reason is that like when I play jazz music, I studied intricate, I mean, like years, decades of study. And I know all the rules so that I know how to break them. So that example, you'd say, yeah, you got to like know the know the game before you can figure out how to mess with it. On the other hand, sometimes you see musicians that never studied it at all, and they just intuitively break the rules. And it's just, it, they're coming at it from a different angle. So I don't know necessarily that there's a one size fits all solution. The only thing I would gravitate to is this. If, if you say, I have to know all the rules before I can break any of them, it might create an excuse that you never go after it at all. Like you're like, oh, I'll do that once I know all the rules and you never get after it. One of the other principles I discuss in the book is this notion called start before you're ready. Start before you're ready. So most of us, we, we wait. We wait for a directive from the boss. We wait for permission. We wait till we have a bulletproof game plan and we end up either not, never going after it or starting too late. So What I would say is it's good to learn the rules so we can break them, but don't wait until you have like total mastery of every rule. I would almost rather you get after it. That's what everyday innovators do. They get started recognizing full well they don't have the, the answers, recognizing full well they don't have a bulletproof plan, and recognizing full well that their first attempts are going to be sloppy and messy, but they start. And then they tweak and adapt and pivot and, and course-correct, and, and they have agility. And over
0: time, they end up in a better result because they
1: started messy as opposed to
0: waiting for perfection. I'm sure this uh, uh, listener really enjoyed it because she's a Juilliard-trained musician uh, herself. And uh, I'm sure that's why she asked that question because you're also a fellow mu- musician. Uh, Edward De Bono's parallel thinking is six thinking hats and his lateral thinking, once you well, used less or so today. Do you reference them, or agree, or disagree with them? Please compare and contrast from your awesome perspective, innovation versus invention. Well, uh, Edward well, DeVono is a hero of mine. I, I, you know, aspire to be in his league someday. Uh, he's a deep thinker
1: and, and a pioneer really in the field of creativity. Um, I didn't reference the six thinking hats specifically in the book, although his work undoubtedly has influenced me over the years. And uh, one of my favorite quotes of his is that uh, one can note uh, you you can't wait, can't just oh, you, you can't go. Oh, and you can't look in a new direction by looking harder in this, or you can't, can't discover a new direction by looking harder in the same direction or something to that effect. But he's just a wonderful thinker and I adore him. I think there's probably a lot of overlap. I try as much as I may. I mean, I try to, you know, obviously I'm a student of, of, of creativity and creative thinking, but I tried to, to, to form my own opinions, mainly based on evidence of that through my interviews and research. So my sense is there's probably some overlap, but there, there could be some dissonance as well. And um, the second part of the question was, how would I uh, contrast innovation and invention you know, when we think about invention, oftentimes our, our default is, can it be patented? You know, is it is an it, is it invention of, uh, you know, can you, can you describe it that way? I prefer the term inventive thinking. And inventive thinking doesn't have to have sort of this minimum threshold that the U.S. Patent Office would grant a, a piece of paper. Um, and I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, so we all carve pumpkins on Halloween, presumably. And presumably what you do if you've ever carved a pumpkin is like you do whatever everybody does. You carve it from the top. You stick your hand down there and get all the goop all over you. And then, and then you go to light the candle. You got to stick your hand down in the pumpkin and you get a second degree burn. And when you want to carry the pumpkin around, you got to get underneath it and sort of waddle around with it. So a, a, a partner of mine one, one many years back said, Josh, try carving it from the bottom. I was like, what? He's like, yeah, think about it. You carve out the bottom, then you get to use gravity. All the gunk just comes right out. When you can light it, you put the base down, stick a candle on it, place the pumpkin gently over the top, no burns. And you want to carry it around, grab it by the handle that nature intended. <laughs> like I was blown away. By the way, anyone who just heard that will never carve a pumpkin the same way again. But... but-
0: and the office. It's it, obvious, right? I think you wouldn't would think, think so. Obvious.
1: But anyway, to me, you know, is that an invention? I mean, you probably can't get a patent on it, but I think that was using inventive thinking because he challenged himself to, to disrupt the, the obvious approach, to challenge conventional wisdom. And rather than accepting things as they are, challenged himself to think about what's possible. So to me, I just love that kind of stuff. That's a big little breakthrough in action.
0: And by the way, I love that we get questions uh, from all over uh, because our listeners ask great, great questions. Uh, one of the best stories of not uh, turning one's career around, but taking it into a totally different direction, was uh, Kas Marte, founder of Khan Body. Please give us the short story, and what can we learn from Kas? Yeah, thank you for bringing him up because
1: so in the book, like we already know that Netflix and Apple are innovative. I don't need to tell you that. Who needs to hear that same story again? So I tried to discover these people and great stories that should be told that haven't been told. And this is a great example of that, uh, Mark. So there's there's this guy named Cos Marte, C-O-S-S is his first name. Uh, and he was born in the Lower East Side of Manhattan, just terrible upbringing. Like He grew up below the poverty line, was in a failing school system, terrible peer influences. And like so many, he got involved, he got into trouble. By age 13, uh, by, by age 11, he tried drugs for the first time. And by age 13, he was selling them he turned out to be a rather enterprising young man, and he built this really effective drug business. He was like a drug kingpin. And by age 20, he was making $2 million a year. But then, well, he ran into a regulatory problem. <laughs> the, uh, the New York police came on in, shut down his drug business, and sent him to prison for seven years. And, and by the way, I'm not trying to glamorize crime in any way. But, but what happened was a uh, prison uh, doctor told him he, he was in terrible failing health. He was very overweight high blood pressure, high cholesterol. And he said, look, look, you're a young guy, but you might not outlive your prison sentence. And and that was kind of the wake up call that he needed. So at that moment, he said, I'm going to do something about this. And he just starts exercising in prison. No, no fancy equipment. He's largely using his body weight, but he gets really into it. And then he goes to the prison library and learns all about fitness and nutrition and and he sticks at it. And, And over a six month period, he lost 70 pounds. So then the other inmates are like, what what are you doing here? Like, can you help me? And he kind of discovered a purpose of helping others build self-control and get in shape. So eventually he paid his debt to society. He's released from prison. But you know, try getting a job as a convicted felon. And he desperately wanted a legitimate, honest future, but he didn't, you know, know what to do. So running out of options, he actually got very creative and decided when he was in prison, he felt like when he was helping people get in shape, he really mattered. So he said, Maybe I could start a gym. But again, like try getting a landlord to give you the keys to a convict, uh, giving a convicted felon, the keys to a building. So he, he begged and you know, did everything he could. Finally, he gets space, but he says like, how can I compete against the mega gyms? How do I compete against LA Fitness and Equinix and soul cycle and all this? So he got really creative and did something special. And one of the things I talk about in the book is called a judo flip, which is if everybody else is doing it one way, what's the polar opposite? And he, to a degree, did, did a judo flip. He said, okay, instead of being the world's like 600th lookalike gym, what if I was the world's first gym of its kind? And he lost it, launched a gym called Khan Body, Khan Body, which is a prison-themed gym. Their slogan is, do the time. So you walk <laughs> into Khan Body, and it's, it feels like you're in a prison. There's like concrete block, and you go through this metal gate, and then you're training in the yard. And there's no fancy equipment. and doing prison drill exercises that he developed while he was incarcerated. And they have so much fun with it. Like The members of the gym aren't called members. They're called inmates. And, and they have like a, a lineup wall, you know, where they can take pictures for, for social media. It's really very fun. Anyway, here's what happens. Because he took this creative approach, he became wildly successful. People fell in love with it. And he told me he's now up to uh, 20,000 members of his gym. And, and when people around the world heard about it, they wanted in on the fun too. He now streams his courses live. He's, he's getting paid from 22 countries. So here's a guy, like the worst situation, he you know, lost his education, lost his freedom, and he came back and is this now an incredibly successful fitness entrepreneur, but it wasn't because he did what everybody else did. Crucially, he did this creative approach, launching a prison-themed gym, and, and he enjoyed wild success as a result.
0: I have a, um, another question here related to good stories that you tell, and I'm particularly interested in this because this guy's from Philadelphia. Could you tell the story of Little Dickie and what you learned from him? <laughs> sure. So I, I, you know, I, I am a musician, like, like our, uh,
1: our friend here from, from Juilliard, and uh, I tell you, most forms of music, I'm not the biggest rap fan personally, but I do, you know, admire the art form and all. But um, there's this guy from Philadelphia who was the opposite of what you think of as a rapper. Most rappers were are African-American. They, they came from a troubled background. They overcame adversity, and they talk about their plight and all this stuff. Lil Dicky, aka Dave Bird, was a white upper middle class Jewish kid from Philadelphia. Like he had a bar mitzvah and went to summer camp. He wasn't, you know, involved in gangs and stuff. And so it's funny though because that's obviously white privilege. But if you want to be a rapper, it's the opposite of white privilege. It's like you're you're the wrong guy. Like don't do that. The advice was go be their lawyer. Don't don't actually be a rapper. And and I'm trying to be racist, but like that that was his his words. What he was saying. So, but he loved rap and he wanted to be a rapper. So he studied what do rappers all do? And he said, you know, the prototypical rapper, it's all about their um, their, their boastfulness and their confidence and they, they're macho and they, they're making it rain with all their money and they're infallible and they, they're you know, boastful and arrogant. And so he created this character called Lil Dicky, which is the complete opposite of that. He's like this anxiety ridden, nebbishy guy who's insecure and he's Frail, is all nervous about his frailties. And he, he does the total opposite. One of the songs that he wrote, um, he, instead of like, I'm the richest guy ever, he, he wrote about him being cheap. And he, he talked <laughs> yeah. about how he, he, he borrows his cousin Lenny's Netflix account and he buys stuff from Mervyn's and he's like, he, he, he's just cheap. It was like, again, the total opposite. And he actually made the video for free because he went and begged and borrowed. And it's like, hey, can I just please make this video at your badass house? And most people said no. And one person said yes. And he made a video for free. Instead of spending a bunch of money on it. Another video we talked about, instead of boastful, how he's like this well-endowed guy, the, the video the, the the song was called <laughs> ex-boyfriend. So he meets this woman and they they've built a relationship and he thinks this is the night like we're going to consummate the deal and they, they go have a drink first and they they run into this woman's ex boyfriend and this woman's ex boyfriend is
0: great story
1: handsome and this giant muscular stud and he's rich and he's charismatic and he's funny and all the things that Lil Dicky is not <laughs> so then they they go to the men's room and he peeks over and realizes that. You know, this under this man is also, you know, extremely well endowed and little dick. So the whole song now goes on for him just like, how can I compete with this? I, oh, my God, I'm so I should just run right now. And it's him expressing his insecurities rather than his arrogance. Anyway, because of this non-traditional approach, he's now been uh, his YouTube videos have been viewed two billion times around the world. He's recorded with Ariana Grande and just Justin Bieber. He has a hit TV show. So it just goes to
0: show that doing the opposite actually can yield wonderful results. I, I like one of the, I and mean, you always touched in the beginning, but do you feel uh, that you'd like to cover the eight obsessions of everyday innovators?
1: Yeah. So as mentioned, I, I really studied, you know, what are the commonalities, what are the mindsets and, and, and how do innovators of all sizes and shapes think? And I, I don't necessarily need to go through all of them, but maybe I'll just share a couple of them because they're actually really fun and kind of counterintuitive. We talked about break it to fix it and start before you're ready. One of them I really love is called don't forget the dinner mint. Don't forget the dinnerment is this notion. Is that you know most of us in our businesses we we make sure we're delivering good quality service and there's a good price point and all that, but but just merely delivering on expectations that's the ante to play. That's not a competitive advantage. So don't forget the dinnerment is a is a, is a strategy that I over uh, that I observe where creators tend to say, okay, is there a little teeny something extra? Can I add a little extra creative flourish? And in proportion, it's very small. It could be two percent extra, but it, it makes their 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 product offering or, or service just totally stand out. It's like when you go to a restaurant, nice meal, and, and before they bring you the check, they say, Mr. Kramer, here's a little pastry, compliments of the chef. And if you ordered it on the menu, you'd say, oh, that's really nice. But because they brought it and it's surprising and you're unex- it's unexpected, it completely transforms your overall experience. Yet it was a microcosm of their overall cost structure. So what that means for us is that when we're about to ship product of any kind, whether you're sending an email or making a presentation or designing a new product. You say, okay, I'm going to have the basic expectations for sure. High quality, good service, et cetera. But then you say, what's a little something extra that I could add? Is there a dinner mint that I could add to make my offering completely stand out? Just a couple of really fast examples. There's a hotel in Orlando called the Magic Castle Hotel. And the Magic Castle Hotel, by all objective measures, is exactly like all the other hotels. It's not a Disney property, it's sort of a a moderate priced hotel. The beds are the same, the room size is the same, the service is the same, the location is the same, the price is the same. There's only one little difference. When you're at their pool and you walk up, you see a bright red telephone, and you walk up to that telephone, there's no no numbers, you can't even dial it, you just pick it up, and on the other end, you hear someone say, what flavor? (laughs) And you say, great. And, and, and then within minutes, someone walks up with a, with a silver platter, white gloves on, and presents you a great Popsicle. So what this thing is, is a Popsicle hotline. Free Popsicles, just pick up the phone and ask for one. Now, again, if you think about their overall cost structure, cost structure their mortgage, their insurance, their staff, their marketing, this is nothing. It's a dinner mint, But they have 10 times the amount of Yelp reviews of any of their competition. Even in the bad times, they're always sold out. And this simple little thing completely separates them from the competitive pack. So my suggestion to everyone listening with great respect is, yes, let's deliver excellent quality work, whether you're a lawyer or a business person, whatever, but but just look for that little extra something to plus it up to to make your offering transcend the competitive pack. Uh, Here's a question
0: from the audience. The number of business establishments less than one year old in the US has risen 42% since 1994, and it's all at an all-time high in 2020 at 80%. 800, 8,000. Uh, however, the pandemic had an effect on the need for immediate creativity and responding to its impact. What are your thoughts on the future of entrepreneurship as a result of the pandemic? Yeah. So excellent. Excellent question. Um, first of all, you
1: know, just goes without saying, but I'll say it anyway. You know, I just, my, my heartfelt extension and, and thoughts and prayers for anyone that, that was impacted by the pandemic. I know many of us were financially, but but more specifically health-wise, I just wish everybody health and strength in these, these difficult times. Um, That being said, I do actually think there's been some benefits of the pandemic. And again, I don't mean to be glib or disrespectful in any way, but but the pandemic, it's almost like the entire world has hit a giant reset button. And the patterns of the past have been broken. The way we shop, the way we sell, the way we lead, the way we eat, the way we love. And, And as a result, when patterns are broken, new opportunities can emerge. And so I think there's a wonderful opportunity for entrepreneurs, because let's say there was some relationship between a customer and a business that was the same for 30 years. If nothing changes there's no reason to change the relationship but now that that, re- that 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 relationship has been disrupted by the pandemic now there's a new opportunity for entrepreneurs there's a new opportunity to to come in as a challenger brand so i think that this is actually going to create one of the most um uh, fruitful entrepreneurial times in history uh so for, for what it's worth i think there's some upside this, this other thing i just learned about this one a week ago i thought it was fascinating and reminded me of the pandemic so in London, a couple of years back, there was a, a, a strike, a labor strike in the tube, the, the London Underground, the subway system. And not all trains were shut down, some were shut down. But two million Londoners rely on that subway to get to work every day. So imagine you're, you're on your commute, like, oh, I got to find a new route. So you, in, during the strike time, you find a new route. And then, then when the strike ends, presumably you'd go back to your original route. But an interesting thing happened. The, the London Underground, you actually swipe your card when you enter and when you exit. So they have data that sees like how you what you did, and what they discovered was fascinating. Five percent of those of those commuters didn't return to their old way. In other words, they discovered a new way, which means that five percent sounds small, but that's hundred thousand people who were going to work every day thinking they had the optimized route, and turned out that they didn't. And what happened is they were involved in a forced experiment. The, the labor strike forced them to reconsider the, the, their tried and true approach and discover something new. And, and by the way, that's a big number because presumably everyone's looking at the map like you should be able to route your fastest approach. It, it, it wasn't like there was hidden data, but then they started, well, oh, well, this train doesn't come as frequently or this one breaks down more. or This subway station is more crowded. And if I do this and, and the Ford's experiment actually yielded a really delicious outcome. So as much as I and again, I, I with deep empathy and compassion that, that, that the pandemic has been very difficult for many of us it also can create a new opportunity and that it's given us that same forced experiment. And maybe we can discover new ways to lead and live that actually are better. And we don't necessarily revert back to the old
0: way. So long-winded way of saying, I think this creates a new fresh opportunity for entrepreneurs. We saw the same thing happen 2008 uh, when the, when that debacle hit, uh, we saw all of a sudden lots of great companies coming out of that. Uh, Another question from the audience What should be done or is being done to improve and advance more inclusive and impactful big little breakthrough ventures across the USA? Well, I think that inclusion and diversity is mission critical as it relates to creativity
1: in all regards of diversity. So again, I play jazz guitar. Can you imagine if I had a 10-person band and we were all playing jazz guitar? That would just be awful. And so my point is, diversity of all kinds fuels creativity. The more diversity, the better the creativity. And that means all kinds, like uh, diversity of thought, diversity of education, diversity of race and gender and and sexual orientation and every other form. So I think that if we want better outcomes for entrepreneurship, they can't all look and act the same. And and too often, venture capitalists, and by the way, I started a venture capital firm, so I know they all kind of look and act like me. They're all like college-educated, middle-aged white dudes. And, and there's nothing like I, I'm not trying to be ashamed of that, but but we need more diversity in investors as well as we need it in 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 entrepreneurs. Um, and, and it's hard because like I face this problem in Detroit. We, we went after this saying we I mean again I, I, I certainly don't think I, I have any bias whatsoever I, I may have unconscious bias but i, I we really wanted to invest in, in minority efforts in our community At the same time we had a fiduciary responsibility to our limited partner investors and we were getting you know one 20th of the number of pitches from minority uh, applicants and and, and and many of it were lower quality. so we actually started a separate program to help coach and nurture, minority entrepreneurs so that they could qualify head-to-head with, with, with those that, that maybe had a different background um, to, to promote diversity in, in, in entrepreneurship. Long story short, I think it's a difficult problem. As much as we say we should just wave our magic wand and be more inclusive, and we should, P.S., um, it, it's difficult because you know, we also have to have responsibility when making in which which companies to invest in and which ones not. So I think that it's one of those things that some parts of life you do something that's difficult or you make a sacrifice because you're going to enjoy individual personal gain. This is a challenge where we need to do something and make some sacrifice. And it may not be individual personal gain, but it's for the greater good. And I think that people who are entrepreneurs and certainly those that back entrepreneurs need to do that. And you might, it may not map directly to you you getting the game, but it absolutely will map to the
0: greater good. And I think we need to do more of it. So we only have a few minutes left. I'm going to try to hit two more questions, but, um, one of the questions I had gotten earlier was, "How how long did it take you to write this book? How quickly can you write a book with so much factual information that you had to research?" Well, this one, as mentioned, I spent
1: I spent over a thousand hours working on. In elapsed time, it was about two and a half years. And uh, I, I heard a great quote, by the way. So you know, again, you think about an author. I'm not in this category. You're very kind of comparing to Malcolm Gladwell. But I read Malcolm Gladwell, and you're like, I could never write like that. And there's a great quote, which I just love that that says. You know, what do all wonderful authors have in common? Lousy first drafts. And I just love that because, you know, all, all, all art starts as kind of not that good and messy. And I, I've learned that sometimes it's the number of revisions that's the difference between a good piece of work and a great piece of work. And so I, I did, I took a lot of time on this. I did, you know, first pass, get all your junky ideas out. Next pass, you know, this is after research. Next pass, Clean up the language. Next pass, add a little bit of humor. Next class, you know, add some richness and detail. And so, it takes a lot of rework and revisions to get to get it right. I hope I did. I did the best I could. I'm proud of the work, but you know, it's it's not a it's not a quick process. I would say though that for anybody that wants to create something of substance, um, please don't be discouraged by the by the workload. You know, uh, it, it, in in the grand scheme of life, yeah, this was a hard project, but you know, now I, I've got a piece of work that I'm proud of that I hope my grandkids
0: are proud of. So don't let the workload discourage. You. Yeah, so let's see if we can get two more questions in here from the audience. What's one blind spot that you had in your work that gave uh, gave you a huge lift because you had a new and improved perspective? I think a blind spot in my work actually ties to what I was just saying is that. So Lady
1: Gaga, whom, whom I wrote about in the book, she said, they said someone asked her, "How do you how do you create a song?" Because you imagine she sits down, writes a song, and it's perfect, and there you go, it's a hit. She said, "I spend like fifteen minutes vomiting bad ideas on a, on a page, and then I spend like two years." polishing it. And so to me, I always thought of the creative process, especially because I do jazz, which is a live art form and that there's the creative process and then that's it. And, and, and really what I think there, it's, it's different steps. There, there's a raw ideation process, but I sort of undervalued the, the number of revisions along the way. That's one thing I worked on hard in this book. And I think made the book a better byproduct. is that we, we think that the creative process is a single lightning bolt from above, and then it's done. It's perfect. And that's rarely the case. Initial ideas are usually messy and flawed, deeply flawed, in fact. And so in this case, I try to give myself more permission in that revisionary phase. And that's one thing that I learned from, from the research here, and I will try to practice going forward.
0: Do you have a couple minutes just to go a little bit over time here? Sure. Okay. So would love to hear uh, what Josh thinks of today's startup world, BC impact investing, patient capital, and community development finance in USA Today. So I think all of
1: those things are good in the abstract, um, certainly. But I think my experience being an investor is that it, investors are herd mentality people in general. So like, oh, what's the latest thing? Sustainability. Oh, we need a sustainability investment in our portfolio. And so uh, most, not all, obviously, but but my experience, many investors in venture tend to um, huddle with the, the crowded masses. I tried to be a contrarian wherever possible. If everyone else is like investing in the flavor of the week, I tried to say, what's the opposite of that? Like Maybe I should do that. And, and one example that I can share personally was um, Detroit. Again, my beloved hometown. So we had this idea. We said, hey, we're going to start a venture capital firm in downtown Detroit, backing tech entrepreneurs instead of manufacturing. And we're going to provide them coaching and support and mentorship and put our shoulder behind them and help them win and, and help reestablish Detroit as a beacon of innovation. And people told us, You're crazy. You can't do that. Go to New York. Go to Silicon Valley. Go to Boston. And so in our case, we did it anyway because we like being opposite. And we had a wonderful outcome. You know, like we we created all these jobs and we have one company that we invested in that's now a unicorn. It's worth $3.8 billion. But I'm not taking credit for Detroit turnaround personally. I'm just saying that I like doing the opposite. And I think venture capital needs more of that. Furthermore, the notion of things like impact investing and stuff, I think, are great. I think that we ought to be judged not only by the bottom line, but this notion of a triple bottom line. In other words, you know, McDonald's is is uh, creates jobs and they are philanthropic and they create shareholder value and such, but their core product itself is probably not so good for kids. On the other hand, if there's a company that can create economic gain, but also the core underlying product is better for is helping the world rather than hurting the world I think we have a responsibility to take a harder look at those types of things in other words instead of only chasing the almighty dollar say is there an and instead of an or can we can we do well and do good and I do hope
0: that that trend it started to, to emerge I hope it continues Josh I could spend all day listening to more of these stories and you and I know I had more questions for more stories but I want to thank uh, you for coming on today the book is a must-have for anybody Who wants to think about innovation and creativity, especially, you're right, doing small things could end up being really big things. And I think anybody who gets the book is going to thoroughly enjoy it, and they're going to see definite parallels between you and Malcolm Gladwell. And I thank you for your time, and I hope that we'll have you back again, maybe to talk about one of the other books that you've written.
1: Mark, thank you so much. And for everybody listening, truly a pleasure to be with you today. I'm deeply grateful for your support. If anyone's curious, um, just check out BigLittleBreakthroughs.com. Um, You're welcome to buy the book, even if you don't, though. There's a free creativity assessment. There's a quick start guide. There's a bunch of downloads. There's sort of like a toolkit to help you become more creative. So check it out. It's biglittlebreakthroughs.com. And once again, deeply grateful for the time today.
0: I will make sure I send it out to everybody, especially those who weren't able to make it today and be watching it at another time. So we'll make sure everybody gets that. All right, everybody. Have a great and safe weekend. And thank you for listening today.